following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. studying the life of God's servant David, an abundant biography in the Bible, one of the most detailed and extensive biographies of any person of God we have. We're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 27, remembering that there are highs and there are lows in this life, and we've seen some of each so far. We saw David on a high last time as he was ready to spare the life of Saul when he easily could have taken that life. He chose not to do so and acted nobly. Now, however, we're going to see a chapter that conveys a rather low uh, time, a short time. Actually, the, the time of it is specified as being 16 months in length. One commentator calls this a godless chapter. And I will hope to make that clear to you as we look at it together. First Samuel 27. David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told to Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, the garments, and come back to Achish. And when Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeremelites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, this is what David has done. Such was his custom all the while that he lived in the, in the country of the Philistines, and Achish trusted David, thinking, He has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, 
he shall always be my servant. And this is the word of our God. I remember once leading a a class of folks and asking them a question that was related to the particular lesson that we were talking about. And I said, if you could go back in your life to some particular age or point in life and, you know, and then have everything from that point on wind forward with new decisions and take the wisdom that you have now back with you, what age would you be? Well, I found that almost nobody wanted to be a child again, and I don't think anybody wanted to be a teenager again. Everybody was pretty glad to be finished with that part of life. But many seemed to say the majority opinion fell that they would like to be in their early 20s. Maybe what we regard as about the post-college age, 21, 22, 23. And folks said, that's the point at which you start making decisions that lock you in to different paths of relationship or career or various things that become harder and harder to undo once you have traveled down those roads. And I'd like to be able to go back and remake some. Fortunately, nobody said I want to go back and get a different wife or a different husband. But, uh, but I think maybe they had career decisions and things like that in mind. Well, do you realize that from that age time in his life, early 20s for almost 10 years, the future king, David, was a fugitive. He was hunted. He had a price on his head. If they had the Old West wanted posters up, you know, it would have said, David wanted, you know, a thousand shekels for information leading to his capture. And we can read his adventures. It sounds a little bit like kind of a Robin Hood outlaw existence. Maybe boys read this idea of dashing around in caves and everything, and it sounds kind of exciting. Well, I think the excitement and the glamour wore off as you lived that way for a period of time, and you increasingly saw your youth departing and wondered about your future prospects, what was going to happen. It took a toll emotionally and mentally and spiritually. Now, we know for a fact that David's age at the time of 1 Samuel 27 was right close to the numeral of the chapter, either 27, possibly closer to 28. He was near the end of his 20s, and he'd been in this fugitive existence for some time now. Interestingly, he now enters into a time when, let's say, the roller coaster of his life has really gone down and kind of bottoms out. And David isn't living close to the Lord or looking close to the Lord in this 16-month period of time. In fact, he has to weave lies and deceptions around him, undertake things that, to you at least, would be morally repugnant as he was slaughtering tribes of nomadic people in order to live out this existence. And one of the things to notice about this chapter is there's nothing in this chapter. The name of God is not here no word about prayer, no word of worship. It seems like David has entered into a desolate time. And in 1 Samuel 27, I think he fulfills a wise saying I read years ago that said, man is the only animal who runs fastest when he has lost his way. That describes David. He's lost his way and he's running for his life. I want you to notice what's going on in 1 Samuel 27, 1. 
the, the very first words are important as we read them. David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day at the hand of Saul. There's nothing better that I can do than go escape to the Philistines. Now you should be reading this if you've got an acquaintance with David so far in our study and saying, what? Why in the world would you say that to yourself, David? We saw you in a noble frame of spiritual and moral standing in an earlier chapter, and now you're telling yourself something like this. Don't we all talk to ourselves? Well, maybe you don't. Maybe you're the rare person. That, and I'm not necessarily saying out loud, but even in your own spirit, in your own mind, you're telling yourself things. I was guilty of this just the other day. I bought gas across the street here. As I was pulling up, a thought was running through my head, and without even thinking, I was not out loud, but I was kind of whispering this uh, an idea to myself. I was saying it. You would have heard it if you'd been sitting in the car with me. And I pulled up at the pump and got out, and I was finishing saying to myself what I was saying, only to see five feet away a lady at the next gas pump pumping it. She's thinking, what, what crazy guy is this? He's talking to himself. He must be the minister from across the street. But I finished my thought, even though she was listening to it. Don't we all talk to ourselves? We carry on a dialogue. Many of the Psalms of David and others say, soul, say to yourself, and something, you know. We're, we're taught we should address ourselves. We should address truth to ourselves. And yet here we have David not addressing truth, but addressing himself with what really seemed like his darkest doubts and fears. As believers in David's God and Savior, I'm telling you, first of all, we need to be people who tell ourselves the truth and live on the basis of that truth. Now, one thing to know is that David's not alone anymore. You know, it's one thing to be a fugitive when you've got a knapsack and you're just fending for yourself and you're dodging through the hills. That's not so bad. But when you've got 600 men and all their families, all of a sudden, you're the leader of a major society. And these people have to be fed. They have to be cared for. They have to have warm garments and so on and shelters and uh, all the things that it would take to tend to people. And so that has created a new pressure for David and probably imparted some of this measure of desperation to him. How in the world am I going to manage as a fugitive from Saul with all these people under my responsibility. I've got to find a refuge. I've got to find a place where Saul will leave us alone. And so he does that. By the way, of course, many of you will recognize he's doing the same thing he had done as an individual back in chapter 21 when he went to Achish, the king of Gath. Goliath's city, the place where Goliath had grown up. Remember that time he kind of got scared at the last minute and, and pretended he was a madman, acted like he was insane. And Achish said, well, you better leave this guy alone. There's something seriously wrong with him. Now, some would say he's undertaking a kind of madness, a different kind of madness, in thinking he can find shelter with his enemies. He did it without consulting the Lord. Notice that. No word about prayer. Abiathar, the priest, is in his camp. It doesn't say he asked the priest to consult the Lord for him. It doesn't say anything about the Lord, as a matter of fact. And some point out who have studied the Psalms closely and 
It's not possible to date every psalm in an exact chronological order, but many of them can be linked to events in David's life. And it does not seem, at least, that we know of any psalm, certainly not any psalm of praise or joy or trust, written in this period of time, this 16 months. David was not singing the songs of the Lord in a strange land. He was speaking to his own heart, even though what his own heart was telling him was contrary to what God had told him. Through the prophet Samuel, the Lord had said, you're going to be king. I anoint you. Through Jonathan, Jonathan said, you're going to be king. I give you my place. You remember even Saul in chapter 24, when David spared his life, said, now I know you are going to be the king. At least three human voices had spoken for God and said, it's God's destiny for you to be the king. And now David's saying, oh, woe is me. I'll never be the king. All I can do is escape and live with my enemies. What a faithless situation this is. And you and I are probably inclined to criticize David here, but I would just say, how long has it been since you were talking to yourself in any similar doubtful way, saying, it doesn't look like God is fulfilling his vows to me? Well, secondly, I would ask you to see that this text in 1 Samuel 27 shows us how once you start living a life of deception, that becomes like a snowball rolling downhill. One lie gives way to another, and another one has to cover that, and then another one has to cover the last three. And look at the situation David had gotten himself into here with Achish. He tried to sort of flatter Achish and said, oh, you don't want us crowding your royal city. Just give us a humble little town somewhere out of the way. We'll live out from under your feet, Achish. And so Achish comes up with this town, Ziklag, apparently sort of a, a borderlands semi-ghost town. Not much of anybody lived there because it was about midway between the stronghold of the Philistines here and Judah where Israel was established here. And Ach, uh, Ziklag was kind of in the middle. Out there in the hill country, the soil wasn't very good, kind of a no-account place, well, I guess you could have Ziklag. I love that name for some reason. I don't know why. You know, we have a lot of biblical names turned into towns in America, right? A lot of Bethels and Jerusalems and names like that. I've never run into Ziklag, Pennsylvania, or Ziklag, Arkansas, or anywhere else. It's, it's just a no-account place, a strange name, where David was able to move in Two wives were happy. The families could spread out. David could walk his dog in the street in peace, you know, or sit on the deck and watch the sunset. But guess what he had to do with 600 families dependent? Everybody had to eat. Everybody needed clothing. Everybody needed household supplies of all kinds. And David, apparently by some deal with Achish, was expected to go out and raid to get these things. Now, Achish probably had a formal deal in his mind that David was raiding the outskirts of Israel and getting these things from the people of Saul. In other words, turning on his own people. And in fact, you have to read between the lines, but David was pretty happy to let Achish think that, that that's exactly what happened when Achish said, well, where'd you go today, David? 
Oh, you know, out that way, you know, kind of over there. And uh, Achish was led to believe that the raids were being conducted upon Israelites. Instead, what David was doing was raiding the nomadic allies of the Philistines, and they're named for you there, several folks. We know the Amalekites are original terrorists, bad guys all the way, and several others who were being raided. And David was not just raiding, he was raiding ruthlessly, killing everyone he encountered, lest someone escape and word get back to Achish and say, hey, did you understand David actually raided your friends, not Israel? So you could even begin to question David's moral conduct here. It shocks us to realize he would have killed the women for these nomadic groups so that they couldn't uh, somehow uh, give word against him. And Achish would be kept in the dark. David was, was, you know, like a spy working for both sides here, wasn't he? We say he was working both ends against the middle. And he was in a place where he had to maintain and act very carefully not to be found out. The Scottish poet and novelist Sir Walter Scott wrote once that famous line, What tangled webs we weave when first we practice to deceive. David's web got thicker and more tangled every single day and every single week in order to maintain this lifestyle at Ziklag, being thought that he was fighting Israel when he was actually fighting the friends of Achish. Now, God preserved David and and let him escape through all this. I'm not going to give away what will, you, you certainly are free to read ahead, but we're going to see that he did pay a price for this, a very bitter price that we hopefully will look at next time and see the rest of the story. But what I want you to see here in contrast to the way David is living is how this negative, godless, prayerless lifestyle full of deceit shows us the importance of living according to gospel truth and that what we really need to do is face the truth about who we are and the truth about what God says about us and live accordingly. It's easy for us to sit here in our 21st century and and condemn David and say, oh, I just can't imagine him being so ruthless, so bloody, living like that. Boy, that's just terrible. And yet I believe that God's Word gives us this negative example of David because of the way it actually represents human behavior in general. And if you doubt that, go to a text like Romans 3, 10, and 11 which says there is no one righteous, not even one, no one who seeks God. All have turned away and become worthless. And then this sentence, their throats are open graves and their tongues practice deceit. Can you really say your tongue has never practiced deceit? Even in the way you relate to family members, to parents, to siblings, to children, to neighbors, co-workers. Isn't it true that we tell the part of the truth that's convenient for us? And even then we might spin it considerably to make it look right, to serve us, to build us up. We would be shocked if we looked at ourselves and saw how many times our tongues 
practice deceit as David did here. God is asking us in the mirror of his grace and his word to look in that mirror and see how far off target all of us are and how ugly is the portrait of the deceits that we practice and the webs of lies even that we have woven, that he wants us to see and bow before him and confess these things. Now, I want to target the application here before we finish today because we have had this special occasion of ordaining and installing officers for our church. And David was certainly a leader of God's people, going to be a leader in God's earthly kingdom. I don't think I'm distorting the text to say we could find some lessons here and some challenges for leaders in God's church and the peculiar pressures and temptations that can fall upon them. Church leaders, not just pastors, elders, deacons, teachers, committee heads, those who reach out to the community, who support our worldwide mission, we're all in one way or another striving to achieve some kind of a result in our ministry, whether it's simply preparing to teach a lesson and do it well or to run a committee in a way that it efficiently arrives at a goal, or giving counsel to people, trying to counsel people in a wise way, or prepare a sermon. You know, there are good ways and not so good ways to accomplish God's work. And you shouldn't assume just because what you're doing has a godly, gospel-oriented goal to it that you are always going to do it in a way that is equally pleasing to God. There are all kinds of cheap paths and shortcuts to accomplishing even the ministry of the gospel of Christ. One of the things, and pastors certainly know about this, and many of our elders know as well, about a sadly widespread issue in this day of the internet when we rejoice in the fact that there is teaching and preaching by so many great expositors of the Word of God available out there. Just You know, you can go and listen to John Piper or R.C. Sproul or whoever might be your favorite Bible teacher nationwide. You don't have to truck on off to a conference. You just get on your computer. You can tap in on a device when you're riding to work and listen to some of the greatest Bible preaching there is. Well, one of the downsides, if there is a downside to that availability, is all the preachers of the land can listen to it also. And we've had numerous situations, not just in my personal acquaintance, but in the, among the evangelical community of men who say, oh, wow, that Tim Keller, he's the best preacher there yet. And guess what? Tim Keller's sermon gets preached at the local church. Now, I will never be guilty of this because I would tell you Tim Keller's my friend and he got all his best material from me. So you don't have to, you don't have to suspect me of that. No. You know, we all use sources. We all use commentaries. We use quips and pieces and illustrations from other people and hopefully give attribution to that. But isn't it a rather shocking thing to think that in the good work of preaching God's Word, we would go out and be completely fraudulent about it and present someone else's work as if it were ours? I know men who have had to leave their churches because of this. I know of a seminary professor who was asked to step down because of repeatedly doing this. God's leaders have to be people of truth. 
and transparency. How easy it would be for you perhaps to have a home fellowship Bible study leader who maybe is an officer in the church or just a leading layman in the church, and you say, wow, that man can really put the Bible across when he leads our home fellowship. And indeed he does, and maybe people are built up in their Christian life, but isn't it at least possible? It's not only possible, it certainly happens that that same individual goes to his home and at night when the house closes down and his family are all tucked away and starting to sleep, he's in the family room with the computer finding the porn sites. Folks, our leaders have got to be people called to integrity and transparency in their lives in these days and not be people following the kinds of deceit that David gave himself to here. Another thing that we can easily do is fall into the trap of pride. Leaders are very prone to pride. It's one of their great sins, especially if their leadership is effective in such a way that people start to say, oh, that guy, he, let's follow him. He has really got it all together. And the leader starts believing his own publicity and starts saying, well, I have to do things that will build up my image, that will enhance my image in other people's eyes. Maybe you're all a guess and a jump ahead of me, but you know I'm possibly going to refer to newsman uh, Brian Williams, a man who's been a leader of one of our major networks and on the news every single night. And most of you know what Brian Williams has done that has brought him national scorn just taking a little fact that one helicopter ahead of his was shot at years ago and his wasn't, to somehow creating the reality that my helicopter was under fire, and people are laughing at this man. He has lost huge esteem. Why? Because it seems he felt that Brian Williams was the news, not the news being the news. Isn't that an easy trap for a leader to fall into? Serving yourself, serving your own reputation. Plain integrity and humility are always the better way. And David lost sight of that completely in this chapter. He will recover, I promise you. We're going to get to that. How do you stay away from that? I can only say to you that as somebody that you know, I, I, I don't know what to do with it when people fawn over me. And there's no reason you should fawn over me. But, you know, oh, Dr. Rogers, you're a sermon. I say, thank you very much, and move on. Because I can't dwell on that. I have to say many times every week, not I but Christ be honored and loved and exalted. David lost sight of this for a while. He failed the Lord in this period of time. Truth didn't penetrate the joints and marrow of his life. But I think we need to be careful in casting stones at him because we all could easily end up in the kind of trap he was in. The wonder of the gospel of God's grace and truth is that God knows the worst about us. And he's always known it. He knew it before we existed. He who is the way, the truth, and the life knew everything there was to know about me, every ugly thing there was to know, and there's a lot. 
before ever he said, I cast my electing love in that direction. You know, our ugly character flaws I think of as, as if they're like, you know, in some of the urban landscapes where you see the, the industrial side of the city where there's graffiti painted all over the place, all the old factories and the railroad cars and everything. We painted graffiti from our ugly deceptiveness and lies and lives out of line all over the person of Jesus Christ. And he went to the cross with that graffiti painted on him to die for it. Church leaders, no matter what your office, if you teach four-year-olds or lead in vacation Bible school or an outreach Bible club for children, You need to be in a position to be able to say, Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. And you need to mean it. You need to mean it. So that gospel truth penetrates your life, not just forms that which comes out of your mouth. God's grace offered to every one of us in the gospel shows us a picture of ourself in which we are actually worse than we ever imagined that we could be. But that same grace, that same forgiveness in the name of Christ is a better, more splendid, totally transformational gift than you have ever imagined it to be. Thanks be to God that he's so much greater than all our sin. And Father, I pray today for maybe someone who's into a David period of declension, where worldly ways of politics and lies and playing both ends against the middle are the way this person has thought they had to get along in this world. I pray, God, they would not have to be shattered quite as rudely as David has coming for him in a chapter or so. I pray, God, that you would make us value truth. Make us transparent. Make us people who care about our integrity, our character, not to build ourselves up, but so that Christ could be seen in us. I pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.